Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, two key updates. All right. One, sunburn, gone. Gone. Two, Boston Celtics are in the Eastern Conference yeah, Finals. Yeah, that was uh, Jason Tatum, you know, announcing he's a top five NBA player with a, some degree of authority. There. The man. Yeah. Marcus Smart, awesome. Jalen yeah. Brown, awesome. It's such a likable Celtics team, which is so rare for a Boston yeah, sports yeah. team. I really like them. I they're, mean, they're like hard to root against. Not since like the 2004 Red Sox has there been such a likable team. Don't sleep on Al Horford. You know, I, like, I, uh, I know. I know. I like Al Horford. He, he single-handedly won one of those games for you guys. You know? he, uh, he played really well. It's yeah. exciting. But but like for world those here, um, Luka Doncic, you know, like that was insane. <laughs> he had his, for those who don't watch basketball, I don't really watch the NBA. Luka Doncic had as many points in the first quarter as, first half, the, first half. as the opposing team. Yeah. I mean, Slovenian basketball you know, has been around for a while. So There you go. Yeah. Well, great stuff. It's on in a couple of days. Uh, I think the first game against the Heat and the Celtics. I know this is about all the time we get for uh, chit-chat, so I'll tell the folks what we're going to hear today. Yeah. Ukraine, the latest news from Mariupol, uh, Finland and Sweden's application to join NATO and all the news on U.S. support. Then we're going to talk about why countries are threatening to boycott the upcoming Summit of the Americas, talk a little bit about President Biden's uh, Cuba policy. There's a major COVID outbreak in North Korea, which is very scary. Elections coming up in Australia. Eurovision, the Queen's Jubilee, Ben. Some real uh, royal correspondent stuff coming up here. Yeah. Then you're going to hear my interview with a Palestinian writer named Jalal Abu Qatar about the killing of a beloved Al Jazeera reporter named Shireen Abu Akla and the West Bank and the subsequent protests that have come from that. So please stick around from that very important issue. You know, I think, you know, honestly, Ben, like it was a year ago, I think we were talking about um, the evictions and the protests in Sheikh Jarrah. East Jerusalem and in the West Bank, and now it's it's scary. It feels like a lot of these tensions are are boiling over again. Yeah, I mean, I I, I couldn't remember seeing a situation where like it literally looked like the pallbearers were going to drop the casket because they're being beaten. attacked and beaten and assaulted by police who are, are from the government that may have had a role in killing her is really dark. Really, um, really so dark. looking forward to hearing that. Interview. And, and frankly, you'll hear, I think, a lot of that darkness and sort of the hopelessness that comes from living in a situation like that where this, you know, this, this journalist who, you know, she was the person that millions of Palestinians watched almost every day to get their news and was just yeah. beloved and was like seen as a kind person. She's a U.S. citizen as well, by the way, uh, and was just gunned down. Which, yeah, which should factor more into the U.S. response, but... Um, yeah, it absolutely should. Uh, before we get to the news, Ben, uh, one quick thing, the crooked marketing team just wants me to tease something big that's coming up from crooked media. I'm not allowed to say what it is. It's allowed to say that we've been working on it for a year and that you guys will love it. So that's it. That's it. That's all I'm allowed to say. Well, I'm excited. I, you know, my attention is up. Do you uh, feel sufficiently teased? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the after the fall marketing team is going to remind you that next oh. week the paperback's out. Next week, one paperbacks. more week. You know, get that that paperback. I have the copy. It's beautiful. New cover. New cover. New cover. Yeah. Any new forward? Any new afterward? I mean, unfortunately, the, the world events are the new forward because <laughs> if a book about Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and the decline of American democracy so, uh, kind of does the work for you, but we got a nice old picture of uh, Orban, Putin, Xi, and Trump on the cover. So mm. you know, a little less subtle and artistic about what the meaning of the book is. Yeah, bosom, <laughs> bosom buddies over yeah. there. Uh, okay, let's turn to some of the key updates from Ukraine. We'll do a little summary, then we'll talk about some of the stuff. So late on Monday night, uh, the Ukrainian authorities announced an end to their combat mission in Mariupol. That's the city in southeastern Ukraine that's been totally surrounded by Russian forces for weeks. The last pocket of Ukrainian resistance was holed up in the Azovstal steel plant, which is this massive industrial complex with miles of fortified underground tunnels. So it sounds like about 250 injured fighters are gonna surrender and get taken to either a medical facility or an area under Russian control, where the hope is that they'll then be returned to Ukraine as part of a prisoner swap with Russia. This is the third tranche of people released from the Azovstal plant. There could be hundreds, if not thousands more in there. The scary thing then is that some lawmakers in the Russian Duma are saying there should be no prison swaps uh, and are calling for the death penalty for these fighters. So, you know, I think we'll have to see how this plays out. Um, Finland and Sweden confirmed on Tuesday that they will officially submit applications for NATO membership. Both countries have big professional militaries and Finland shares an 800 plus mile border with Russia. So it's safe to say that this is not what Putin wanted. Uh, the prime minister of Sweden, the president of Finland are going to meet with Biden in Washington on Thursday. All existing NATO members would have to agree to admit them. It sounds like Prime Minister Erdogan of Turkey has expressed some opposition so far, but we'll see if that gets worked out. Uh, a couple more things. The British Defense Ministry says Russia has lost one-third of the ground invasion force that sent into Ukraine back in February. It's obviously a staggering number. There's some reports about this one specific disastrous attempt by Russian forces to cross a river in the Donbass. These forces came under uh, Ukrainian artillery fire. They lost dozens of tanks, other vehicles, nearly 500 troops. Um, there's reports that Putin himself is now directing troop movements in Ukraine. He might want to consider leaving that to yeah. the experts because this- That doesn't you know, end well. Yeah. Well, this little vignette of the of the river crossing was so bad that, I mean, normally pro-Russian military bloggers in Russia are now criticizing the war effort. Uh, and then finally, Mitch McConnell made a surprise trip to Ukraine where he met with President Zelensky in Kiev. Uh, I'm sure he was hoping to uh, personally deliver the news that the Senate had passed this $40 million, sorry, $40 billion tranche of aid for Ukraine, but Rand Paul had uh, other ideas. He's holding it up still, so I don't know. Sorry, your caucus sucks. Yeah, Mitch. yeah, can't deliver your own caucus, Mitch. Is that a strong leader? Yeah, good luck. Uh, good luck um, wrangling those clowns. So Ben, uh, a bit of a roundup there. Let's start with this news about Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Um, did you see that Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said, <laughs> he said, uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, quote, makes no difference. It was like three weeks ago, I think, that Dmitry Medvedev was threatening to deploy uh, nuclear weapons to the border if this happened. What do you think happened with this change? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, that there's nothing they can do about it. And the reality is that comment like puts the lie to everything they said in the run up to the war about this being just about NATO, mm -hmm. you know, um, because the reality is if, if what they were complaining about was the encroachment of NATO on Russia's borders and that being unacceptable, Finland like doubles the border between NATO and Russia. And, and Finland and Sweden managed to be neutral throughout the entirety of the Cold War. You know, Sweden managed to be neutral throughout World War II and World War I. Um, so this is a seismic historical change in European security. 
again, doubles the border, adds two very capable militaries to NATO. These are not, you know, we collaborated with Nordic militaries more than some NATO member states uh, in the Obama years. Like, they're very capable. Um, and, you know, the Erdogan thing is interesting to me because I don't take that that seriously because in the past, the pattern has been Erdogan expresses opposition to something and NATO is a consensus organization, so everybody has to agree. I'm sure he's going to try to extract and probably will extract some transactional concession from the U.S. or NATO on some other issue he cares about. Well, yeah, he's mad about the treatment of Kurdish fighters by Sweden. I yeah. Think. So this is what he's up to. It's not I don't think this is like a game changer. I, I think that he's going to, you know, he's been very skillful over the years at using his role as someone whose vote is necessary within NATO to extract some form of concession or maybe to try to get the U.S. and other countries to look the other way at things that Erdogan is doing mm -hmm. in, inside his borders or to get some harder line on on some Kurdish issue. So I, I think that you know he'll make noise, he'll squeeze something, but it looks like for all intents and purposes, this is going forward. And if Russia's aims were in part to push back NATO from its borders and NATO enlargement, um, you know, <laughs> they've failed spectacularly and revealed that their interest never really was that. It was to try to take back Ukraine as part of some reconstitution of the Russian empire. That's not working out as well either for them. New. No. Uh, and, and not to be outdone, uh, on Monday, Putin gathered his little version of NATO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which includes Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Belarus, got them all together in Moscow, but only Belarus was vocally supportive of Putin's invasion of Ukraine and, and actually, I think, criticized some of the others who were there. That was, um, I'm not sure that went to plan either. Yeah, it didn't go well for him. I mean, those other guys who were already like grim-faced apparatchik type leaders, but they, they looked, they literally looked like I look before I walk in for like major dental surgery. Like <laughs> they did not look happy to be there. And if the message Putin was trying to send is like he has his own team, like these guys didn't exactly look like they were, you know, motivated to stand up to NATO. And the reality is what that reflects is like the Central Asian uh, countries, you know, they have a long history of Russian and Soviet subjugation. Um, they may be corrupt, but uh, their own publics uh, and they themselves, I, I think, uh, don't necessarily want to be in the same place that Georgia and uh, Ukraine and to some extent Belarus have found themselves in, uh, which is having Russia kind of carving up parts of their territory. So, you know, uh, I, I guess he showed he's the strongest member of that, uh, whatever that, you know, organization uh, pretends to be, but doesn't, like, what is the contribution of the stands, the Central Asian countries, to the Ukrainian war effort? Zero. They're not doing anything to help Russia or support yeah, Russia. Not even helping them evade yeah, sanctions. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just Belarus that is in this, you know, and that just shows you that Lukashenko is totally a lackey for Putin, which he has been for a while. It's interesting, like, you know, these sort of cracks in Putin's armor, I think, have been visible to us since, you know, day three of the invasion, but they're becoming more and more visible yeah. to the Russian people. I mean, on Monday, this military analyst, retired colonel, was on Russian state TV, and he basically dared to tell the truth and say the war was getting worse for Russia. He said, we are in total geopolitical isolation and the whole world is against us, uh, adding that Russia's resources are now limited by sanctions and that Ukraine could field a one million man army if given enough weapons, 
by the West. I mean, the, the failure is just like, even on Russian state TV, it seems to be breaking through. Yeah. And Putin feels like he's flailing. You know, it feels like he's trying different justifications on almost a daily basis. He's trying different photo ops militarily. You know, they're, they're not making progress in the Donbass. You know, I, I think people had thought that they might be able to consolidate their control over the parts of Luhansk and Donetsk that they held and then build out from that. They just haven't been able to do that. Again, to look at it from the other perspective, they, they have claimed more territory. Mariupol is, uh, I think, the most problematic piece mm-hmm. of this for Ukraine and the West in that, you know, they that that's both a very significant population center, a former population center, tragically. But it also, you know, it, it connects southern Ukraine up to the parts of eastern Ukraine that Russia holds and it. It's on the sea. So that to me is going to be the thing to watch. Is, is, is there an effort by Ukraine to retake Mariupol? Is there an effort by Ukraine to push Russia out of eastern Ukraine? Or is there some kind of new status quo, which is actually, you know, again, is worse for Ukraine than it was before Geopolitically, Ukraine is in a stronger position. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're on the fast track to membership in the European Union. NATO is enlarged. They have all this international support. Um, but territorially, they still have this issue in southern Ukraine. But everything else for Russia um, is moving in the wrong direction. And it's not evident what lever Putin can pull to reverse that, which I, I think you know speaks to why he's kind of flailing about uh, to demonstrate that things are going better than they they obviously are. Yeah, it could flag on, you know, the importance of Mariupol. I mean, I think the economic war on Ukraine gets less attention, but it is devastating. I mean, Russia is blowing up their factories. The farmers can't plant wheat. Like you mentioned earlier, I mean, Russia is basically blockading all of Ukraine's yeah. uh, Black Sea ports. So they can't get anything in and out. They have to go by rail all the way to the West through Europe. That's going to destroy their GDP. And causing the food crisis. You know, you heard yes. Wally at AMO last week saying that like one big piece of this is how much wheat just can't get out of those ports. And that's hurting people around the world. I, I think this is, I mean, I'm in- increasingly alarmed by this. I mean, low and middle income countries are in huge trouble. 14 million people are near starvation in the Horn of Africa. India, the second biggest wheat ex- producer in the world, just banned exports of wheat. I mean, I have no idea where people are going to get food. Yeah. No, and this problem of, of countries hoarding, you know, is the one that really has to be addressed because when there start to be food shortages, what you'd like to see is countries adding wheat to the global market, adding foodstuffs to the global market. But it tends to be the habit of countries to do the opposite yeah. and to say, like, if there are going to be shortages, we want to keep what we've got here. Uh, and that's what produces famine. And that's what dries up food prices. And so there's going to be a major effort through every international fora possible um, to, to try to reverse the instinct that countries have to hoard and to try to introduce more wheat and other agricultural material to the, the market. And thus far, it hasn't happened. Frankly, hard for uh, the U.S. as a country to scold others when we've been hoarding yeah. vaccines for the yeah. last couple of years. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. Um, any other things about Ukraine you think we should talk about before we get to the summit? No. I mean, I, I think that... Um, you know, the reality is like we're in this more protracted phase, right? Where it's just going to be grinded out in Donbass and just the kind of ongoing worry that does Putin lash out and do something dramatic, like use chemical weapons, uh, something to try to reverse the momentum. He doesn't seem like he can reverse the the momentum through conventional weapons. Um, The only thing, thing that jumped out to me too is that like while there's this rightful 
narrative of Ukrainian military prowess, the, the all the reports of what has happened in the parts of Ukraine where Russia, you know, not, we've you know, Bucha obviously got a lot of attention outside Kiev, but mm-hmm. these these cities in eastern Ukraine and Mariupol, like the accounts of people being like deported into Russia, like what has happened to those people? You know, you're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, th- that that to me, I think, unfortunately, it feels like the darker scenarios are, are what have been unfolding. And we don't have a lot of visibility into that too. So that's something to watch. Yeah, I mean, God, Putin just like directing troops down at a brigade level, that doesn't sound good. It's also the pattern of like, throughout history, that's when wars are going bad, you know, it gets worse when leaders start conducting, you know, General Putin over here with no experience doing that. Um, that, that, that tends to go bad. It feels like even that military operation across the river, again, you know, with all the caveats that we're not military experts here, but from all the analysis I read, it's the kind of thing that made no sense that you do, if you're so politically eager to just have some win that you do something stupid like that. You're moving faster than you should. Mm-hmm. You're moving in a place that you shouldn't. Like it feels like the Russian war effort is being driven by this desire to 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 rack up some win. And that is really working against them and making their troops really vulnerable. Um, you know, and you have all the examples from history, whether it's like LBJ, you know, directing bombing runs thinking, from the, yeah. the White House. You know, like it just doesn't work. It doesn't LBA, end well. LBJ picking targets in yeah. Vietnam. I mean, that's not gonna not gonna work. Uh, okay, let's switch gears to the Summit of Americas uh, because the Summit of Americas is happening in a few weeks. It's in our home turf here in Los Angeles. Come visit us if you're a listener. If we want maybe a head of state, I don't know anybody. Who should, who should we talk to? Well, if any heads of state show up, yeah, that'd be yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so the, good good transition. Yeah. There's been some consternation uh, in the press about the planning participants, the agenda, it's all spilling out. New York Times had some of it this week, the uh, LA Times as well. Um, some participants want clearer goals. Some are mad that the US has refused to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua to the summit. Uh, the president of Mexico said he won't attend if those countries aren't invited. Leaders in Bolivia, Honduras, and the Caribbean are also considering boycotts. So that's on the bad side of the ledger. There was some better news that I want to run by you, get a real gut check from you, Ben. Uh, this week when it comes to President Biden's Cuba policy. Um, they announced that the U.S. will restore flights to Cuban cities beyond Havana. So as of right now, I believe you can only fly to Havana, which is really tough if you want to go anywhere else. Um, they're working to reestablish um, some family unification programs, allow group travel for educational or professional exchanges, and lift the cap on remittances. Um, what do you think of this softening of, of Biden's Cuba policy and these these summit issues? So, look, any step in a better direction is welcome. I'm glad that they've taken these steps. Um, the most important ones are kind of restaffing our embassy and getting that up and running. And the family reunification um, is going to allow Cubans who've been separated uh, between the United States and Cuba to you know, obviously be able to reconnect. That's important. Is that literally just like a, a matter of like having staff in the embassy to process, to visas, process visas? To process okay. visas. Beyond that? I was really disappointed, um, and let me explain why. The the travel, this is group travel, right? Like, do you guys like charter planes um, for licensed travel when you go places? No. No. What we did in the Obama administration is we made it possible for anybody individually to go to Cuba for, quote, people-to-people purposes. So there was still a legislative travel ban, but like, 
if you visit someplace, it's a people to people purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people could go to Cuba. And I met so many people who went to Cuba because of that. They did not do this. And and let's be very clear, but like, as it, you see the headline, it's like, uh, authorizes travel. Mm -hmm. No, like it authorized like charter planes, mm -hmm. right? It's not, um, it, so to me, this is like, like not even really half measure, right? Um, and I don't, you know, it, it, it strikes me that there's still afraid to just engage the question that in, that opening up things to Cuba is a better way of improving the lives of Cuban people. They also announced some steps to support Cuban entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. This is the nascent private sector there, people in small businesses. Like access to cloud computing. That's great. But Trump imposed a sanction on the financial mechanism that people used, and again, in the Obama years to support entrepreneurs, and they kept that sanction in place. So- Look, it's a step forward. I welcome that, but this is nowhere near. This is like going back to where we were kind of at the beginning of the Obama administration. It's not anywhere near going back to where we were at the end. And, and that means there's still less revenue getting into Cuba. There's still less capacity just for Americans to travel. I, I, I personally find it offensive, the idea that you can travel anywhere in the world as an American, but you, you can't go to Cuba, 90 miles from Florida, because... What? Because Bob Menendez doesn't want you to go there? You see, he criticized these minor he changes. He criticized them, but like, I think secretly probably thought, you know, this is about as good as he could hope mm -hmm. for in terms of new announcements. Um, which leads me to the some of the Americas. Like, it, what it also didn't address is like inviting Cuba to some of the Americas. And look, we, the United States encouraged, welcomed, supported the participation in Cuba at the Some of the Americas in 2015. And that totally changed the dynamic of that summit. That summit was no longer about the ideological competition between the United States and Cuba. We could actually address a broad agenda. Everybody felt good about it in the hemisphere. Make no mistake, nobody in Latin America agrees with our Cuba policy. And so by continuing to suggest that we're going to use our hosting of the summit as a way to exclude Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, even if you don't like those governments, that step only works if you're isolating them. We, we are isolating ourselves by taking that step because you've got Mexico, you've got Caribbean countries saying they're not going to come. Like and maybe, up to maybe 15 yeah. Caribbean countries. Which is only going to make Cuba look stronger than us, right? So again, people could listen and say, Ben, why are you defending this authoritarian government in Cuba? I'm saying this is not hurting that government. It's actually highlighting their clout that all these countries are going to boycott this summit. And it's preventing the summit from being on the agenda it should be on, you know, whether that's on climate cooperation, migration cooperation, you know, actually trying to support um, democratic rights and human rights across the region. It, it, we're, we're, because our Latin America policy is about South Florida and Bob Menendez and not about Latin America, how would you feel like if you're looking at this even from a diaspora perspective, right? Like what message does this send to like Mexican Americans? It's like we care so much about like our South Florida politics that we're willing to have the president of Mexico boycott the summit so that we don't piss off some people in South Florida. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And we got to stop wrapping ourselves around this axle. It's a huge missed opportunity, Tommy. Like the Sum of the Americas only happens every three years. The US only hosts the Sum of the Americas, I don't know, every 20 years. And this summit thus far, unless something changes, and you know, hopefully it does change in the next, what, three weeks, is going to once again be dominated by this question of like American-Cuban policy. And it's just a waste, especially when in the Obama administration, we like 
we ripped this Band-Aid off. Yeah. Like, like we lanced this boil. Like, now here we are right back in the soup. And also, like, businesses grew around these changes that were made in the Obama administration. Like, I, I know I have a friend who was leading fishing charters in Cuba after the changes that Obama made. That got impossible during the Trump era and is now significantly harder because of these charters. I mean, Airbnb was doing a brisk business in, in Cuba. U.S. airlines were flying. Like, I, I just, they're just limiting their ability to, like, Build these ties. Yeah, I mean, and, and the couple of things I just want to really underscore, like democracy and human rights, which if you listen to this podcast, you know we care about that. The human rights circumstance has gotten much worse since Trump rolled back the Obama yeah, policy. Right. Like that is an indisputable fact. Like like human right, the, the, the not very good human rights circumstance in Cuba, but I would argue was improving, has gotten much worse since we did this. So it's not like this hard line on Cuba works. We tried it out for 60 years and hasn't worked. And then also just this basic thing of how do most Americans interact with this policy, not letting people travel. I, I've talked to so many people that they loved going to Cuba. And yeah, they were starting businesses. They're making contacts with Cubans. They were bridging divides and, and saying to Americans, you're not allowed to travel unless you go on some like charter plane for, with some like licensed thing that the government can check while you're going. Like what? That's freedom. Like that. that like I'd like to be free to travel where I want to travel. Mm -hmm. You know. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Uh, speaking of hardline policies, let's talk about North Korea. Uh, so last week, North Korea announced that it had found its first ever COVID-19 case in the country. Uh, this was obviously a wild understatement because on Monday, the North Korean Central News Agency reported that more than 1.2 million people have gotten sick with a fever and 50 have died. Uh, they don't, it doesn't seem like North Korea has much in terms of testing, so they're calling it a fever, but it's almost certainly COVID-19. Kim Jong-un has since been spotted wearing a mask in public. Uh, over half a million North Koreans are in quarantine. Most of the country, if not all of it, is in lockdown. Kim reportedly berated his top health officials and mobilized the military to deal with the virus. But like a couple weeks ago, North Korea had a 20,000 person military parade in Pyongyang. So not exactly showing leadership from the top big guy. Uh, so far, North Korea has refused vaccine doses from the UN. They won't take help from South Korea. So then this is just like, this is the worst case Dark, scenario. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unvaccinated population rampant spread. So too late for vaccination. They need antivirals at this point. Um, weak, non-existent medical infrastructure, a country that already suffers from dangerous food shortages. And now you're locking people down, by the way, in no small part because of Western sanctions. And then a government that's just like, we will suppress anyone. You know, I mean, this feels like 
just an absolute nightmare. It does because I mean, the point people tend there tend to be high rates of malnourished people in North Korea, right? So that presumably makes people more vulnerable to the virus, but also like it makes lockdowns much more untenable. Like if people, you know, can't. It's not like people have stockpiles of food in their homes. No, right. So like, how are you going to do that without raising you know real chilling risks of of starvation? Yeah. Um, it's yeah, and Kim Jong Un seems like he's uh, not the healthiest guy either. I mean, uh, <laughs> talk about someone who's uh, for sure. I mean, I yeah. wonder if that's what freaked him out. Yeah, yeah, no, because he's he's you know he's got to be in the uh, at risk population here too. Um, so yeah, this uh, so, something to watch. I mean, you know, we we've seen these countries that were isolated from COVID, like really get hit hard when when it when it comes. You know, uh, and and they have the most acute vulnerabilities to it. I mean, the one thing I don't think we've seen anywhere is like a mass uprising because of a failed COVID response. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not. I mean, I, I think, well, the U.S. you saw yeah, like, close, recent uprisings, close, yeah. but we've seen them in both directions. Right. We've seen the anti-vax, we've seen anti-vax uprisings. Yeah, I, I think in India, pro-COVID coalition. In, in, when Delta hit India, mm-hmm. you saw some, I think, pockets of, of uh, public discontent. In Shanghai, right, you saw some people shouting out the windows. It is interesting, like, whether there's anything that can break the kind of iron grip that the North Korean regime has on its people. Um, you know, the the thus far there hasn't been it would be very interesting to see if lockdowns you know precipitate that because you know this is this is not a place that can can weather that but we don't have a lot of insight we you know pyongyang mm. a little bit but we don't really see what happens out in the north green countryside either i also think the u.s shut down pretty hard any suggestion that we might uh loosen sanctions to allow in humanitarian relief, which is, I think, disappointing and a missed opportunity. Yeah, we should be doing that. Now, they might not take it anyway, um, but again, test the proposition. I mean, South Korea, again, I think has offered it. I mean, um, th- there's no reason not to offer them food food assistance, medical assistance. Um, again, I think they, they tend to resist that. But, but here, I mean, th- we don't have any interest in ordinary North Koreans dying no, no. of starvation or COVID. No, not at all. Australia is going to the polls on May 21st. So we've got Prime Minister Scott Morrison from the Liberal National Coalition. It's very confusing with these foreign parties. These are parties. not our liberals, yeah. Not our yeah, liberals. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he <laughs> allegedly got drunk and pooped his pants in a McDonald's in 1997. Yes. Just never for forget. the record. Never forget. Um, the other major candidate is Anthony Albanese, who's the former Deputy Prime Minister and Infrastructure Minister from the Labor Party. Small handful of, uh, of smaller parties, some independent reps, the third biggest party is the Green Party. Here's some of the issues at play, Ben. We got massive income inequality. Uh, they are dealing with you know the post-pandemic debt and economic challenges. There's sexism and misogyny that is rampant throughout government and business there. And Australia's relationship with China is looming large. President Xi Jinping is apparently, uh, his face is in a bunch of attack ads now on buses and things. So it's very interesting. Um, one reason that Americans should really, really, really care about this election is climate change. Yes. 2021, Australia had the highest greenhouse gas emissions from coal in the world on a per capita basis. Uh, Scott Morrison's party has blocked all efforts to do something about climate change, basically, because they want to protect the mining industry. Labor hasn't been perfect on mining, especially in regions where there are a lot of coal mines, but uh, it would be a huge improvement. Um, But there's been a series of just horrific floods and fires that have drastically increased awareness and concern about climate change in opinion polls. So fingers crossed 
Voting is compulsory for if you're over 18. So that's cool. We should try that out. Uh, and the party that wins needs 76 seats in the 151 member lower house to form a government. Anything you're watching for in this one besides, you know, potential campaign I just want stops Scott Morrison, at McDonald's? Yeah, I just want Scott Morrison to lose. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who like, not only does he do shit about climate change, like he literally went like vacationing in Maui when like the country is burning. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been, you know, almost, I, I think around a decade that you've had the the right wing party in there. I mean, it, they just need it, need to change just, just, just I mean, for a lot of reasons, but for climate alone, there's a global interest here in, in Scott Morrison's defeat um, and, and making things better here. So, you know, we got some Australian worldos out there. Like, come on, guys, like bring this one across the finish line. A couple recent elections where we thought labor was getting close and, and it ended up being a depressing result. Like, like the, we are counting on you. <laughs> um, uh, to 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 do your part for the the planet here. Never mind, obviously yourselves, um, because you know this would it would it would be much better. Even if labor is not perfect on climate, it would it would be in a much better position than than what we got with Morrison. Yeah, I mean they were dragged kicking and screaming to meet even basic emissions yeah. reductions. Just, just make a target, just yeah. to make to even just put out a target. Yeah, uh, Ben, I was watching um, a sixty minutes Australia piece on on Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader. This is from the description. There'd be little argument for most fair-minded Australians. Opposition leader Anthony Albanese is a nice enough bloke, but where the discussion might heat up is over whether he has the ticker to take on the, <laughs> on the top job. And the first like I love seven minutes of it are about how he had a glow up and he lost a ton of weight and he looks amazing these days. <laughs> I, I, I love Australia. And Park is like, my kids watch this Australian show, Bluey, mm. uh, in an endless loop. It's like the greatest kids show on television. Um, but yeah, and like the China stuff is another interesting angle. And the fact that, that we're now at a place where they're demagoguing China in much the same way that America yeah. does. It, it does just show you that I, I think that is a pretty big shift because, uh, you know, if you're looking 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think the prism through which countries like Australia and New Zealand looked at China was very much like, hey, we're a lot of money to be made. Um, you know, this is a huge market. Like the share of trade between Australia and China is like, you know, very significant. But you've had these kind of political influence scandals, these efforts by China really throw its weight around. Um, then you've had the AUKUS deal, right? Mm -hmm. The the sub deal that, uh, and, and so it's interesting to watch the China issue kind of flip in those countries to, like you know, from from a place of hey, this is a place to make money to like hey, this is a place to demagogue. I, I, I you know, demagoguery is not good, but it does show you that publics um, in in certain countries, not not a lot, are beginning to see China through a prism of fear more than profit. Um, and that is, a, that is a notable shift. Yeah, we'll see this, which way this one cuts because I think yeah. there's basically no rules against truth and advertising in Australian political ads. So everyone is just being well, like, like linked with China. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if I recall correctly, I think the Australians called for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. The Chinese beat the shit out of them yeah. in response. I think maybe cut imports of Australian coal, actually. And yeah, it would be great to see um, the Biden administration have a big opening to cooperate with Australia on green energy on rather climate, than yeah. nuclear subs. Well, cuz actually like in that in that region, you know, like one of the 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 areas of cooperation that we pursued particularly in the second Obama administration was with ASEAN the Southeast Asian countries mm -hmm. and Australia like you could th there's a, there's serious work to be done on kind of regional clean energy initiatives, development of renewable resources, deforestation initiatives, you know, Australia like has pretty tight relations with Indonesia and those mm -hmm. ASEAN countries. So 
there is a like an affirmative agenda to pursue, um, you know, collectively across um, the Asia Pacific on, on things like climate that are a lot easier done than when you've got Scott Morrison there. And yeah, you're right. Like we should be defining our cooperation in that region, and you know, to some extent, the contrast we draw with. China's development policy, which is Belt Road Initiative, which is debt traps and mm -hmm. Chinese infrastructure projects, we should be about renewable energy and you know like the the types of things that that pr promote more sustainable models of development. And, and it's harder to do that when one of your key partners is Scott Morrison. Yeah, that guy sucks. Uh, one more Ukraine thing. So Ukraine's uh, Kalush Orchestra won the 2022 Eurovision Song Contest, which is this big international songwriting competition. The men in the group are some of the only adult men who have been allowed to leave Ukraine since the war started. And their victory was this, you know, huge morale boost for the country in the war effort. Uh, they got a special video shout out from President Zelensky. Um, the band's lead singer made a special appeal for help for Mariupol uh, and the folks in the Azovstal steel uh, complex during the competition. They are now planning to tour Europe to raise money for the Ukrainian army. Ben, have you ever watched Eurovision? I like know nothing about this. I know this is a global it's phenomenon. It's but massive. Are you a fan? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as much as I can be. I mean, I don't I don't want to claim I'm sitting there like hanging on the competition, but mm -hmm. like I'm not voting. I'm 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 checking out the YouTube videos and and I like watching the like the rabid patriotism like cuz Europe European patriotism is like different than American and kind of comes out more in like and I think I say this in a healthy way, and like soccer uh -huh, and Eurovision sure. contests, totally, you know. Totally. But this was like a nice thing. And and actually, the other funny thing is that Russia used to be really in Eurovision. They were like very dismissive of this, you know. This uh, they kind of had a, like trashed the competition itself. That's bullshit. Like they used to be all in on this, like everybody else, you know. And the Mariupol f focus, the uh, the degree to which you know, the 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 people in the steel plant have become these kind of symbols of resistance is is interesting. I mean mm -hmm. that that that. That's clearly something that Ukrainians are rallying around. And I mean, one thing we didn't cover in the military update, but like, you know, the, them holding out, it did make it much more difficult for Russia to take Mariupol. And, and now you see, you know, not just failures in Donbass, but we didn't mention Kharkiv, which is this, the, the second biggest city in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, like overwhelming, not, uh, second biggest city in Ukraine, uh, large majority of Russian speakers. And now... Russia's pulling back from there, yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. so you you see the the degree of difficulty, even when Russia has been able to make a gain, has been part of what the Ukrainians have rallied around. Here. Yeah, I mean, to me, this the Eurovision win. I mean, it's cool, right? It's a fun competition, yeah. but it's also an example of the way the Ukrainians have used every single opportunity yeah. they have found to build support. Whether it's like speeches by Zelensky to Parliament, to videos, to competitions like this, and also, I mean, back to your point about the Azovstal fighters. I mean. Zelensky has, I think, smartly yeah. and, and probably accurately built them up as like global heroes, like yeah. men and women who who saved the war effort single-handedly by tying the Russians down in Mariupol. And I think he has this sort of like innate understanding that like, you know, you remember the ghost of Kiev, that yeah. like yeah. not at all true story about the fighter who shot down like 40 Russian jets. Like, yeah. But you need little heroes like that. You need stories. Well, and you make a really good point. Like they, they have the spectrum with, that they've mobilized. It's not just military, like the, the pop culture. I mean, again, this has become a cliche, but it is true. Like when you have a president who was working in television. Yeah. And by the way, like his staff, like some of them were like producers on the television show. Like they know spectacle, right? Totally. And they know what 
what reaches people culturally and what reaches people culturally is not politicians giving press conferences. It's Eurovision competitions or, or the dude giving a concert, like literally sitting uh, in Chernobyl, right? There's a Ukrainian rock star doing that. Mm-hmm. Like every, every image is viral. Like the social media dynamic. Tommy, I was talking to like a really awesome uh, member of Congress, Jason Crow from Colorado yeah. the other day, who's like, yeah, like they're like Ukrainian government officials, like in my district, like, making the case for Ukrainian aid, like they, they know what they're doing in, in ways that I think we can all learn from in, in political campaigns. They do not restrict political campaigns, in this case, a campaign for, for assistance to politicians. They enlist the kind of whole society and culture in it. You know, we in U.S. politics spend way too much time fighting it out on cable news networks or Politico. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, these guys are everywhere. Tweets and stuff like they're 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 in sports, they're in culture, they're in music. It's 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 something we can learn from. Well, Ben, I'm uh, I'm sad to tell you that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn is telling people not to listen to the media when it comes to the war in Ukraine because he knows the real truth, which is that quote: "We are behind a fascist, corrupt country in an ungodly war." Dude was national security advisor. Yeah. You know, like, had a defense like, intelligence like, as well. Totally until we got not until he got canned, you know. I think he said that too by the way on the some the Stone Zone. Um uh, no, it was Lindell. Oh, the Stone Zone on Lindell TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so if I may if I may make a recommendation for the like next like red pill of Tommy Vitor, like sure. the Stone Zone seems like something you might need to explore. I don't even know what that I, is. I assume it's a Roger Stone thing like I uh, like if Mike Lindell sponsors it, the pillow guy. Like, God damn it. Um, it's some ecosystem there. Uh, <sighs> a little QAnon adjacent. Well, not, not adjacent, Christ. like a little QAnon direct on target, I uh, Maybe he is yeah. Q. What do we know? Yeah. Um, final thing for my, my royal correspondent friend. Um, so we got some great news for all you monarchy heads out there. Queen Elizabeth II attended the final night of an equestrian extravaganza to celebrate her platinum jubilee. Some of you might be wondering, what the fuck is a Platinum Jubilee? Don't worry, I Googled it. Uh, it's basically a celebration of the 70th anniversary of her accession to the throne. So if you live in the UK, you get a four-day weekend. That's sweet. There's a parade. There's a party. There's a pageant. Lots of P words. There's a horse show that included 500 horses, 1,000 performers. For some reason, Tom Cruise was there. And according to the BBC, quote, the Trinidad and Tobago Defense Forces Steel Drum Troop performed a rhythmic version of ABBA's Dancing Queen, which the no. Queen appeared to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the best thing. I went, look, we just like to see her out there. I mean, yeah. there was some serious concern there when like, right? Charles showed up to give the Queen's speech. Um, uh, so, like, good that she's still doing it. Um, that's a big jubilee. I mean, there, you know, she's had a bunch of jubilees. That's like a, she, I mean, she's in territory with, like, you know, longest reigning monarch here. Like, uh, Queen Victoria, you know, no, no more. I, I think, right? Uh, yeah, she's ninety six. Yeah, right? yeah. But I, what's Tom Cruise uh, like? Was he promoting? Uh, how do you feel about Top Gun Maverick? I mean, are you? Are you oh, like, I'll see it. You, you'll see it. I'll yeah. definitely see that. Yeah. Who are we kidding here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think it's going to be a good movie. Airplanes are cool. Fighter jets are cool as hell. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, like I have no doubt it's good. I wonder. Um, I wonder if they're still in like the same F. Was it fourteens? I think it was like F fourteen Tomcat or something. I was like I, I was like a total Top Gun stand. Me too. Back in the day, I mean, uh, I'm dating myself. Here, Great but, video game uh, too. Like, yeah, like I was I was all in on Top Gun. I don't know how many times I saw that. And actually, I did the the meathead college thing where you like um, sing. You've lost that loving feeling in mm. the bar to some girl. That was more of a high school move. Yeah, in, uh, where I grew up. Freshman, freshman. 
freshman college. It happens. Yeah. Mistakes yeah. were made. Uh, okay, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, and then you'll hear my interview with Jalal Abu Qatar uh, about the killing of an Al Jazeera reporter named Shireen Abu Akla in the West Bank and the subsequent uh, violence at her funeral procession and what it means for the future of the Palestinian people. So stick around for that. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I am very excited to welcome to the show Jalal Abu Qatar. He's a Palestinian writer uh, and civil servant based in Jerusalem. Jalal, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me, Tommy. Uh, so, so last week, uh, a veteran journalist named Shireen Abu Akla was killed while covering an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank. Al Jazeera uh, has said, her employer has said that the Israeli military deliberately targeted and killed her. The Israeli military initially tried to argue that Shireen had been shot by Palestinian militants, but they backtracked on that claim when it seems like essentially everyone who was there, including a lot of journalists, uh, said that was not even physically possible. Can we just start by describing who Shireen is uh, and how much she meant to so many Palestinians? Um, of course, uh the news is still, we're still processing the shocking news a few days later, actually. Uh, just earlier, I saw her, her nephew, her niece, actually, she was at the location where Shireen was shot. And I just saw it on a story, and I thought I was over the, the, the grief, the period, but no, it's still there. A lot of people don't understand that uh, Shireen, she meant a lot to everyone. Uh, and the reason is, because she was probably the first and the best for so many years. And as a person, she was, I don't, I don't want to, she, she was pure. She was, a, she was a good soul. She was a happy person. She's a, a very positive uh, spirit in many ways. And everyone who knew her, either from her work professionally, her colleagues or family or friends, everyone loved her. This was very obvious. So it now it comes to every person, how did Shireen come into their life? And myself, for, for example, I can tell my own personal story. Um, I was probably seven or eight years old in 2002 when there was a, mass, a scale, massive scale incursion by the Israeli military into the West Bank uh, during the Second Intifada. As a, as a young child, I saw checkpoints coming up. I saw the roads being blocked. Um, um, I saw tanks rolling on the streets, and there was curfew. So many, like much of the time, I could watch from my window, like helicopters or uh, like F sixteen jets firing and shooting. All of this was happening outside. I was still a young child, and I was still like getting a grasp of what's going on. I was very interested in the shape of the tank and the the troop carriers and and guns and bullets. Like that was very interesting for me. I had no no idea what's actually going on outside, like every single other Palestinian child at the time, all over the West Bank and Jerusalem. 
uh, probably more so in the West Bank, they didn't have an idea of what's going on outside. And we'd catch with that West when we go to the TV and there was nothing but Al Jazeera Arabic. It was a very brand new channel. And it was, there was no one but Shireen Abu Aqli and her colleague and boss, uh, Walid Lomari. They were the faces in every household. They were bringing us the news of what's going on outside. They were the, the window to what's going on in the West Bank. There was a lot of violence and horror. People kept hearing stories, but there was no one bringing us the news except Shireen at the time. She was just there by the tanks and the soldiers, and it looked scary. Like I would be wondering, like how how is she not scared of being out there in the midst of this like really violent uh, war? It looked like a really violent war from what I saw on TV. So we grew up with Shireen as that t- figure on the TV, that brave courageous journalist who's doing all those stories and bringing us what was going on. 20 years ago, it was the Battle of Jenin or Jenin Massacre. It was a, a, a large campaign in Jenin and there was no one there covering it but Shireen. So to many people, that's when we first knew her. That's when she became, she rose to become a star, an icon uh, in our um, psyche, in the, our Palestinian psyche. And she inspired many of us in many ways as well. Um, you know, on, on top of her, you know, her, her being sh- brutally shot and killed. I mean, a lot of people, myself included, were then further shocked and horrified by the images of mourners being beaten by Israeli police at her funeral procession, including uh, pallbearers carrying casket. Yeah. Um, I, I know you were you were there that day. Can you sort of describe what happened and and what that was like? I uh, like I was very like. I knew the day Friday for the funeral, it was going to be a tough day. Like I've been in Jerusalem. I've lived my whole life born and raised. More recently, I'm more experienced in how the Israeli state suppresses everything Palestinian and the violence that they could uh, could, uh, take, like do and commit in order to suppress any sign of Palestinian identity or existence in occupied Jerusalem. They want to portray Jerusalem as a not occupied, but actually capital of Israel. They want to show this unified one Jerusalem. But the reality on the ground, it's very much under occupation, where half the city is occupied and half the population of the city are not citizens of Israel. They are not able to vote. They are not participating in the in the state that governs every part and aspect of their life. They are occupied people, myself included. So I know that this occupier state, Israel, is willing to go to extremes to prevent any sight of this Palestinian identity. And unfortunately, we saw how how far they would go during the funeral procession of Shireen Abu Aqli in Jerusalem. I still cannot get over the the images, the the footage. Like, they wanted so... Like, they they attacked the, the, the procession in such a brutal way that I just felt, why would anyone commit such violence at... A funeral. Why would they beat the pallbearers, which were obviously holding the caskets, and like they were wanting to go on this procession? And the, the the attack they received was so brutal and meaningless. I still don't understand how this violence could could uh, take place. I I thought I I had an idea. Like I thought I should probably go to the church where the funeral pr- uh, prayers would take place, uh, and the uh, 
the 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 hospital was about five kilometers away, or perhaps less actually, uh, perhaps like three kilometers away. So my dad, my sister, my brother, half my friends were at the hospital. They wanted to start the procession from there. So many Palestinians were at the hospital inside, like, saying last goodbye to Shireen and wanting to carry her coffin to the old city through Palestinian areas, by the way, all of Palestinian areas from Sheikh Jarrah to to uh, the old city. It's just one street. And no one thought that the Israeli occupation state would go this far to prevent them from carrying the casket and going to the city. The violence we saw from inside the hospital and from the, the courtyards, the the videos are still coming out. It just, it, it's meaningless. It's brutal violence. And it just shows you that this reality under occupation is so brutal in every aspect, but they're doing it for one reason, because they know there won't be accountability They've done it in the past. They will do it again, probably. They know that they want to maintain this occupation at any cost, in any means possible. And no one's no one's looking at Israel and saying, oh, naughty Israel, you should be punished, you should be sanctioned, you should be facing some sort of consequence for your actions. So as long as Israel is acting in impunity, this sort of violence, the extreme versions of it, is still going to continue in Jerusalem. I mean, I mean listen, I, this is an ignorant question because I've never been to Sheikh Jarrah. I've never been to the West Bank. I've never been to these places. You know, I, I know the the sort of uh, the Israeli police said that that they were responding to rock throwing, but I also saw soldiers just ripping down Palestinian flags. I mean, was the was the latter you know the issue of just you know this rule against uh, raising a Palestinian flag sort of what set off some of these attacks on mourners? There's there's a few things to know. Uh, this funeral at the at the courtyards of the of the um, of the of the hospital the claim that thugs were thrown is false uh, the whatever a crowd of mourners would do when they're attacked when they're first like being besieged and attacked uh, the israeli police released videos of water bottles being thrown that does not justify the brutal violence we saw but the violence was beginning even before the bottles were thrown the presence of an occupation uh, force in in huge numbers, and they are by this whole procession. They are the ones who perpetrated this act. This act is attributed to the state of Israel, which which this those are, those troopers are the face of the Israeli occupation in East Jerusalem. So their presence there was provocative because they do not want to allow any nationalist. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, like any nationalist chants or slogans or Palestinian mm-hmm. flags being raised. But then she is a Palestinian icon and she is respected by every Palestinian and Palestinians in East Jerusalem are living under occupation and it's within their right to mourn their icon in the most respectful way they, they deem possible. The, the flag was such a huge issue. Every day before the funeral procession took place, they were uh, interrogating... Uh, Shireen's brother, they brought him to the Shabak to, to, to interrogate him and tell him, we do not want the sight of flags. We do not want her coffin to be covered with a flag. When Shireen's coffin first arrived from Ramallah to Jerusalem on Thursday after the ceremony in Ramallah, um, the coffin was taken out at her house in Beit Hanina and it was attacked That's the, the day before the procession. Uh, by Israeli police who stopped the ambulance and they wanted to take off the flags from the flag from the the coffin itself. Mm-hmm. They were faced with some resistance on the street when they stopped the ambulance, and they let it go. 
But everyone knew that next day, the fact that there's a flag on the coffin or that people carry the Palestinian flag in this funeral procession is going to be a huge trigger to the Israeli forces who are uh, who are around us. And maybe I can also tell you, like, what I witnessed was different from what the, the what happened at the hospital because I chose to be in the old city in the church uh, two hours early mm-hmm. just to make sure that we don't get cut off or that the roads into the city don't get blocked because we saw right. from, like, the early morning there were preparations to block um, the access to the old city. So I went there early and I was at the church when the coffin arrived from the hospital. I had only seen on my t- on my phone and heard from my family the, about the violence there. I was in shock, of course, at I was seeing, but at the church, it was still calm. When the coffin arrived, the, the grief was strong and people were just either crying or just chanting out loud or just like speaking their mind. And that was happening in the old city, the Jerusalem old city. Um the Roman Catholic Church is close to the Jaffa Gate area. It's in an alleyway. And it was super crowded. It was so crowded. We went to the church. It took an hour for the funeral prayers to take place. And then as we went out with the coffin, I saw num- like numbers of people I could not even imagine. Like I saw so many people in every corner of the whole courtyard of Jaffa Gate, a massive area. I saw so many people, Palestinians, walking in this funeral procession. And as far as the eyesight could go, towards the the cemetery on Mount Zion, which is about 200 meters away from the church, Mm -hmm. the whole path to the cemetery was filled with people. And I could see Palestinian flags scattered around. I felt like this confidence, like, wow, this is is a significant moment. I've never been, I've never seen such a sight. So many people, thousands upon thousands, so many of them carrying the flags. So I knew that Israelis were suppressing every occasion, at every occasion, the raising of the Palestinian flag. There were, uh, throughout the day, there were people, uh, undercover agents, who would put on a cap at one moment that says police, and they would take off all the flags they can, and then would get out from the crowd. They were trying to take away all the flags, but I still saw so many in this funeral procession. And that's when I took a flag that I had on my on myself as well, I took it up and I was like, this is a huge moment. I'm inside Jaffa Gate courtyard and we're walking in this procession. I was very happy to hold the flag. 30, 40 seconds, it was just snatched. I was like looking around me and it was like a two meters tall uh, Israeli uh, officer just grabbed it and walked away. This kept happening throughout the procession. I kept seeing officers walking in the crowd and taking flags from kids, from old ladies and pushing and assaulting some people as well. There was a lot of like um, anger from the mourners because people were genuinely angry about what happened to Shireen. They were genuinely angry and they were just yelling at the, the Israeli officers who were within the crowd, just snatching flags from everyone. It was a very tense situation because they have not let us grieve for this one moment. They did not respect that so many people have come out for Shireen. They've all come out for Shireen and they wanted to send her away in the best way they could imagine. And that's what we were denied in Jerusalem. And that's the reality under occupation. Yeah. Um, God, I'm so sorry. I mean, so, you know, what is the next step in terms uh, of an investigation into her killing in, in efforts to hold, you know, the people responsible accountable? I know there's been this back and forth um, between Palestinian and Israeli authorities about demands by the Israelis that uh, Palestinians turn over the bullet 
that killed her. Uh, I'm not sure if it's sort of still stuck there, but w- what's the latest? Um, I mean, in many ways, it's weird when the person, the party who is accused of committing the crime, wants to have a part to take part in this crime. Yeah, uh, there are a few things I can I can say. I'll, I'll start with the fact that Shirin is not the first journalist who was killed by Israel. Um, she is the 46th, according to uh, data that I've collected and published in my piece in The Guardian. Uh, she's the 46th journalist who's been killed since the year 2000 by Israeli uh, fire. Uh, ma- most of the journalists are Palestinian, but some of them are foreign. There is a British, there's American journalists as well who were killed in Gaza. Um, in, at one occasion during a war on Gaza in 2014, over a dozen journalists were killed in like a 20-day period in bombing at Gaza. Um, it's not the first time that Israel wants to open an investigation. And even the Israeli human rights organization, Beit Salem, uh, they've issued a statement perhaps more than seven years ago. After a, a lot of years in their work, they said we're going to stop petitioning the Israeli courts to investigate the crimes that we're documenting because they said that whenever we document abuses, war crimes, or any sort of crime, and we ask the Israelis to investigate it, an investigation leads to nothing, and no one from uh, the police or the military or the government is held accountable for a certain uh, like action. So even Israeli human rights group does not believe that the Israeli courts or Israeli uh, side would be an, an honest uh, b- broker in such an investigation. That's one thing. The second is the circumstances around Shireen's killing. Uh, first, at the, during the first day, of course, we had witness statements from the journalists, her colleagues who were around her, who all said the same thing about the location of the Israeli forces at the camp, about the fact they've chosen that spot for visibility and safety, far away from any clashes that could erupt between Palestinians and Israelis. They were um, in the in the site, the line of sight of the Israelis, and beyond them were the documented spots of Palestinian militants. So the Palestinians were even beyond the Israelis. So first day we had this, the witness statements from the Palestinian journalists who were there and whoever was there. They all corroborated the same story, that the fire came from the Israelis at the Israeli site. And it was very targeted, the, the autopsy showed the same thing, that the, the shooting was very targeted and it was meant to kill. Uh, it was a very quick uh, bullet that killed Shireen in a very exposed area, even though she was wearing full gear, protective mm-hmm. gear all over her, her body. The shooting continued whenever people tried to approach her. Bullets kept coming from what the journalists described as a sniper. So that was the first day. We had researchers from Beit Salem, the Israeli Human Rights Group, go down to the field the same day. The first thing they did was completely debunk the Israeli version of the events. The Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, along with high-up government officials, shared a video at 8 a.m. when the, f- the news first broke to muddy the water. They shared a video of a Palestinian uh, fighter or militant shooting in an alleyway. And they said Shireen could have died in Palestinian fire. It turned out three, four hours later that the video uh, shared by the Israelis and the location where Shireen was killed had nothing to do with each other. Hmm. The researchers went to the field and photographed the entire area of the camp. They photographed, uh, did a video throughout the whole area to prove that the Israelis' uh, uh, information was 
meant to mislead. The Israelis first backtracked from that uh, single video. They insisted they wanted the bullet. Um, the, the I think Bellingcat, it's American-based uh, investigative yeah. uh, journalism group, Bellingcat, they did a, an audio forensic analysis of the sound of the bullets that were hitting the journalist and the guy who tried to rescue Shireen, ha- ha- tried to pull her after she was shot. The analysis they did concluded what the Israelis had already said, that the bullets came from a distance and direction of where the Israelis were positioned in the camp. The same exact distance through the audio forensic analysis showed like 170, 180 meters away. The Israeli position was was proven to be by Palestinians and Israeli military themselves. It was about 190 to 250 meters away. Uh, that's how far the bullet traveled that killed Shireen. And any presence or sighting of any Palestinian in that area from that morning was shown to be beyond the Israeli military. So there's plenty of evidence already out there, all pointing to the same thing. Even the Israelis are saying they're backtracking now and they're saying it's very likely that one of them had done this shot. They interrogated one soldier who said he had bad eyesight. He had shot and he was getting shot at. But that's all we've heard of this interrogation of a soldier. They haven't claimed responsibility, of course, but they said it's very likely that could have been an Israeli bullet. They're still asking for the bullet. I don't really know what. There, there should be a talk about accountability. There should be talk about um, how to protect journalists working on the field in Palestine or or end violent Israeli raids that always lead to someone being killed or perhaps just end the occupation, just pressure Israel to end the occupation. There's a lot that could be done beyond just insisting that this bullet has to prove anything because the Americans are going to be involved. The Qataris, I think the PA has said, Americans and Qataris are invited to be involved in the investigation, but they wouldn't hand this evidence to the Israeli side for them to analyze it. That wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of international response. I mean, I know the US, uh, the White House has uh, condemned the killing. Uh, they've called on a, an investigation. I, I think, you know, the US is in a unique role here because Shireen was a US citizen. Uh, the US ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, condemned the killing, called an investigation. Is that sufficient? I mean, what else would you like to see the US and the international community actually do here? There, There is a lot. Um, on an official diplomatic level, there could be support and not objection for the Palestinians seeking to go to the International Criminal Court to raise a case, cases, multiple cases against Israel. So far, the effort of the Palestinians is being blocked at ev- in every way possible. Um, political pressure is put on the Palestinians by the Americans, especially by the Americans, to not go to the ICC and to not seek international justice against Israel in a way to protect Israel because it's a very easy case at the ICC. And there's been political pressure put on the PA to to avoid doing that. Um, I, at very simplest uh, base level, I would, I would call on all governments, especially the UK and the US, not to act against the PA when they go to the ICC. Actually support going to international justice what's wrong with going to the ICC? Uh, A more ambitious um, expectation would be recognition for the Palestinians. The official stance is a state uh, on the 1967 borders. That's what the Americans have adopted. The Europeans support it as well. But neither 
the European EU or uh, or the Americans are willing to go the extra step and recognize the Palestinian state, for example. So they're not really doing the bare minimum that is expected at this point. Uh, financial sub- support, weapons, uh, trade with Israel, uh, any form of sanctions, any sort of thing that could t- like that could show Israel that okay, maybe what they're doing is not good. Like maybe stop committing all those abuses and there will be consequence. But no one is putting any consequences against Israel for the actions they've commit they've keep committing actually. Yeah, so you're just looking for any incremental step towards accountability. Basically. Any step that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So, you know, recently there have been a number of, of terrorist attacks on Israelis. I believe 19 have been killed. Those attacks were often followed by raids by Israeli security forces. You know, some people have suggested that um, those raids feel more like retribution at times than efforts to actually find individuals who, who committed these acts. Again, like at the risk of sounding naive, like when I the, the areas you're talking about, listeners might have heard about before, like Sheikh Jarrah, when there were evictions that led to protests that led to a full-scale war. When I hear about someone like Shireen being killed, and then when I see images of a funeral procession being attacked, it's just hard for me to think of something that would do more to humiliate, infuriate, incite a, a group of people. And I worry about you know the prospect of this escalating into a full-scale conflict like we saw last year. How concerned are, are people about that kind of thing happening? It's a, it's a very hard thing for the Palestinians. Um, I don't know how we do it. There is such lack of hope on the horizon. There is so much pessimism among Palestinians under occupation. They, everyone feels this has gone for far too long and every other year we're faced with the same exact news and stories. Every year we're, we're hearing about mass expulsions somewhere or uh, raids elsewhere, a war on Gaza, a siege on Gaza that's been ongoing for 15 years. There's so much that Palestinians are facing daily. Every right to work, every f- aspect of our lives in the West Bank and Jerusalem is controlled by Israel. Uh, not only the physical checkpoints aspect or like the fact that we can't build uh, homes and uh, naturally like uh, live in our territories, in our lands. We're so restricted in every way of life. There are so many things that I can't even list in this that are happening that Palestinians are not feeling there is any hope that something better will come out in the future. They feel like we've we've been saying this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it keeps getting worse for us. It keeps getting worse. It's it's very sad that no one is willing to give Palestinians hope. For example, any kind of political support on on a major level could make Palestinians feel like, oh, maybe something good can come out. Maybe, maybe there will be something good in the future. Like you can't take away hope from such people who are living under occupation. And, you know, Amnesty came out, Human Rights Watch came out, and others have said this is apartheid, apartheid between the river and the sea. The reports were damning, the, the evidence was there. Apartheid is happening, yet we feel no one is willing to even address that. We feel like maybe Ukraine 
deserves all the support by all those who are against occupation, and I am one of them. I support Ukraine's right to resist such an invasion by the the, the Russians, but we don't feel like we are getting any um, any equal support. For example, we feel like all we talk about is pessimism in a way like, look, they're double standards. Look how they're describing the same act done in Ukraine and how they describe what we do in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Look how they are willing to call it war crimes within a week in Ukraine and have even the ICC, like they've struggled to describe things as war crimes. There is so much hesitation when it comes to Palestine and Israel. There's so much unwillingness to act by, by major governments in the UK, uh, in the US, some European governments are even being um, weird in, in how they address it. Like in Germany, there are some laws that are associating uh, anti-Semitism directly with anti-Israel rhetoric, for example. Mm-hmm. Like they are banning uh, protests that are coming out against Israeli policies, against Israeli apartheid, um, even amnesty their their chapter in Germany did not release the report. They put a notice out that if anyone wants to see the report, they can go on the American or other websites hmm. in different languages. But Amnesty in Germany will refrain from releasing it in fear of stoking anti-Semitic um, strife in Germany. It's weird when we feel like no one is willing to even address what goes on in Palestine just because of this historic guilt that the Germans uh, do have. And uh, I don't know about others in, 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 like in the Europe, like the UK is responsible in a way for what the situation is today because they were the ones to hand over the country to Israel. Uh, they were the ones responsible for in their mandate, the, the colonial period before 1948. Um, there is a historic responsibility towards the Palestinian people that we feel no one is willing to undertake and they are able to. Of course they're able to. We've seen how they act with Ukraine, but they're just seemingly and very obviously not willing to act for Palestine, not willing to speak out against Israeli policies, not willing to stand up against apartheid in 21st century. Well, Joel, I really appreciate you being willing to speak out and come on the show and, and help us understand this better. If, if people want to follow you, find your work, sort of read some of the articles you references, where, where should they go? You can find everything linked on Twitter, my Twitter, Jalal, A-K underscore J-O-J-O. Okay. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll uh, retweet that so folks can find it easily. Um, Jalal Alabakater, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate your time and uh, hope to talk soon. Inshallah, hopefully. Thank you. Thanks again to Jalal Abukater for, for joining the show. Thanks to, uh, I don't know, Tom Cruise and all Jubilee fans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, thanks to the Trinidad Tobago, uh, <laughs> you know, like marching band or I whatever, like a steel drum band. Doing I love Abba. that too. I will say to people like, you know, feeling a little pissed off by that interview as you should, um, we're currently in an environment where like APAC is dumping uh, tons of money in oh, the primaries. Oh, I meant to bring this up. So I just want to put in a plug for uh, Congressman Andy Levin who's basically been on the receiving end of more APAC attack money than anybody else for just having fairly mainstream pro two-state solution positions. So let's let's talk about this more in the next episode, yeah. but might as well wing it again here. So is this DMFI money, the Democratic Majority for Israel? That- this is straight up, some of it's DMFI, but APAC created the super PAC. And it, you know, like it feels like 
the main function of the super PAC is to get into Democratic primaries. Yeah. And, to, you know, look, I, Andy got redistricted in with Haley Stevens, another Democratic member. Um, this is less about her and just more about, like, the attacks he's been under just feel like a bunch of bullshit, particularly given the the circumstances. You know, he, he's been someone out there and trying to hold the Israeli government accountable for things like this, not taking, like, wild positions or anything. And... They're coming down on him like a ton of bricks. So yeah, and, and so there's DMFI, which is the Democratic Majority for Israel, which is a, you know, they call themselves a liberal super PAC, but they're funded no, by a bunch yeah, of Republican yeah. billionaires <laughs> mostly, and they've been attacking a bunch of progressives uh, in Pennsylvania. I think they went after Jamal Bowman back in the day. Yeah. They attacked Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner, Jennifer Cisneros down in Texas. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean that it's, um, pretty ugly. Yeah. It's not, not, not even, about Israel, pro-Israel issues in a lot of instances. Too. Yeah. And in, in, in the Michigan case, it, it's very much about Israel. Like, and this isn't even about, like, this is just like, this is not what these primaries should be about. You know, like, like, like if they're left center primary fights, like that's fine and healthy for the Democratic party. Like, I, I don't know that this is how they should be decided. No, no. Agreed. Uh, okay. Well, that's all we got for this week, but we will talk to you next week. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.